We'll take our text this morning from just one verse in the book of Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 4, one of Christ's Beatitudes. It says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is one of those... um, one of those verses that some might consider a paradox. That's something that doesn't seem to make sense, and yet we know it's true because Christ spoke the words Himself. But we also know that not everyone who mourns is comforted or shall be comforted. How is this even possible? We know not all mourning brings comfort. But the Lord, when He speaks of this type of mourning, He is referring to mourning over the right things and for the right reasons. And there are actually two different types of mourning, maybe more, but I found two different definitions for the word mourn. One means to express grief or sorrow or deep contrition. That's one type of mourning. The other mourning is a murmur or a half-suppressed or muttered complaint, grumbling. Two types of mourning. That second type is probably the one that people are most familiar with. I remember the story I was told that there's a brother in California who for many years he was a custom home builder. And he told about a time he was, uh, I believe he was doing a remodel for a client. Uh, He and his wife were dairy farmers and quite successful. And during the whole course of the construction and the project, the wife was continually complaining and murmuring and grieving and mourning. And it wasn't over the quality of the work. It was over the fact she only had a $500,000 budget to work with. Caused her quite a bit of grief, apparently. And she would tell about how some of her friends in the community and other families, she knew how to budget twice that big. And so, for whatever reason, she felt like she was at a disadvantage. Well, obviously that woman would never be satisfied. That kind of mourning doesn't bring any kind of comfort. But the Word of God lets us know there is actually a right way and a wrong way to mourn. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 tell us this. It says, Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So we can see here, according to the Scriptures, one type of sorrow leads to repentance and comfort and eternal life. The other type of sorrow, the worldly sorrow it speaks of here, leads to even more sorrow and eventually eternal death. The sorrow that the Lord speaks about is that sorrow of being more, or or, over being more than just Uh, being rebuked or even chastened or disciplined. It has to be over more than just the consequences of our sins. It has to be over the sin itself. That's what godly sorrow is all about. You know, people grieve over many things. 
financial reversals, poor investments, broken relationships, personal losses, poor choices. You know, we've probably all seen court trials where a guilty verdict is handed down and all of a sudden that defendant may not show any emotion through the whole trial, but when he finds out what his fate is and that there's been a penalty, sometimes they show great emotion. A lot of times they show remorse, but it isn't over what they did or the pain they caused the victims of their families. It's over the fact that they were caught or found out. That's not godly sorrow. I found a definition about worldly sorrow that I think is very fitting. It says, Worldly sorrow revolves around the pain sin causes to oneself rather than the offense and dishonor it is to God. So until that sorrow leads to repentance, there can be no comfort. We have some biblical examples in God's Word of both types of mourning. Of course, the first example that uh, Brother Darrell already read about is the story in Mark of the rich young ruler. This is an example of a worldly sorrow that leads to destruction. This man, you think about the promise this man showed here. Apparently, according to this passage of Scripture, he sought the Lord on his own accord. He said he came running to the Lord. He knelt before the Lord, showed the proper humility and position before the Lord. He showed the Lord honor. He referred to him as good master. Asked the right question. Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He knew the commandments. The Bible even tells us that the Lord beheld him and he loved him. Had everything, every condition possible to find the Lord that day. But sadly, it says that when he was heard, when he was told what to do, it said he was sad and he, he went away grieved. How sad that he uh, lacked that thing in his heart that would cause him to realize uh, that the greatest sin in his life was the fact that he loved something more than the Lord. So he went away grieved. That sorrow did not lead him to repentance. It's ironic. He said he grieved because he was rich. Most people grieve over poverty and being poor, but... Just the opposite is true in this man's life. The very thing that he depended on to bring him happiness and peace and security was the very thing that caused him the greatest amount of grief because he could not bring himself to truly repent and realize that he could have kept all these other commandments, but the greatest sin of all was that he had something in his life he loved more than the Lord, so he went away sorrowful. We don't know what happened to that young man after this account. But I'm pretty sure he never looked at those riches in the same way ever again. They became a snare to him. But that's the wrong kind of grief. First Samuel chapter 15, we have another account. This one is in the Old Testament. This is the story of King Saul. And in this particular chapter here, chapter 15, God had commanded King Saul to destroy all of the Amalekites. 
They were a plague and a thorn in the side of Israel, and they were uh, causing a great deal of grief to God's people. So God commanded them to destroy them all. But once again, Saul disobeyed the commandment of the Lord. This wasn't the first time he disobeyed, but he was caught. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 9 and 10, it tells us this. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse that they destroyed utterly. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all the night. So we know Saul disobeyed the Lord. He got caught. But rather than grieve over his sin, we see him lying to try to cover it up. Verse 13, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Tried to cover it up. Well, we know when that didn't work, then he began to blame others. Verse 21, he says, But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. So we see, rather than humble himself and realize what he'd done and grieve over his sin, he tried to lie, he tried to hide it, tried to blame others. Tried to cover it up? Well, obviously, that didn't work. And finally, in verse 24, we seem to get a confession out of Saul anyway. It says, And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Well, he said the right words. But words without action are meaningless. There was no repentance behind those words. In verse 30, we see, it says, Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. He wasn't sorry over the fact that he got caught, or he was actually sorry over the fact he got caught, but he uh, grieved over the fact that his actions caused him to lose credibility in the sight of the people. So he, he begged Samuel, let me worship anyway. Basically, he was trying to save face in front of the people. He was remorseful, but he was remorseful over his own actions, and he wasn't the least bit concerned about what his actions actually did to a righteous, holy God. And we know as... Uh, things progress in Saul's life. We see it just going from bad to worse. That's that kind of worldly sorrow that brings more sorrow. Worldly sorrow is self-centered sorrow. It led to Saul's destruction. He grieved over the pain and anguish that his own disobedience had caused him rather than the grief over the fact that his actions had hurt and offended a righteous, holy God. So we see there's a big difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Thankfully, we have positive examples in God's Word. We see the right kind of grieving. If you turn over to 2 Kings 
Chapter 22 and 23, we have the account of King Josiah. It says, King Josiah, he was the son of Ammon and the grandson of Manasseh. Both of those men were extremely wicked kings, but Josiah was different. It said he began to reign at eight years of age. Imagine that if there are any eight-year-olds here. Imagine ruling over a kingdom. Some might think that sounded pretty cool. That was a big responsibility, but King Josiah had a heart. He wanted to please the Lord. The Bible says that he did that, which is right in the sight of the Lord. And thankfully, he had godly counselors to guide him in his younger years. But it says that in the 18th year of his reign, he raised some money to repair the temple. And as they were repairing the temple, it says the book of the law was found and it was brought before King Josiah and it was read before the king. And he said, as he heard the words, he realized that he and the nation of Judah were in trouble. The Lord was going to pour out his wrath and his judgment upon them for their idolatry and their wickedness. Well, how did Josiah respond to that news? Well, we read in chapter 22, verse 11. It says, And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law that he rent his clothes. That is an Old Testament type of genuine repentance. And in verse 19, it says, Because thine heart was tender, and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord, when thou heardest what I spake against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and has rent thy clothes and wept before me, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. What a difference in attitude here. King Josiah was so grieved over his sin and the sins of his people that he personally repented and he called for a time of national repentance. Again, the next chapter, 23, verse 3, it says, And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and with all their soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book and all the people stood to the covenant. Well, what happened as a result? Well, you know what? Revival is what happened. True godly sorrow and repentance often leads to revival. As you read the rest of that chapter, many reforms followed in the land. The temple was cleansed from all the pagan idols. It says that the high places were removed. The observance of the Passover was restored. The idolatrous priests were put down and removed. Those who had familiar spirits and wizards were removed out of the land and put away, and the land was cleansed and purged. But the most important part is that the Lord delayed his judgment because Judah and Josiah were willing to humble themselves and repent of their sins. God spared them, and rather than receiving judgment, they received peace and comfort. We know later, as you read through that book, God did pass judgment on Judah because of the sins of Manasseh, but during Josiah's reign, because of his humility and his willingness to repent, God spared them and brought them comfort. That's the results of godly sorrow. You know, national and corporate, even church-wide revival is wonderful, but we know it has to begin 
with personal revival. Personal revival can only happen when there's godly sorrow and repentance that takes place. You know, whenever I think of godly sorrow and repentance, I'm reminded of the testimony of Brother Joel Wright. I see Sister Ethel Hodson, she's here. This is her father. And Brother Joel, he started out in life. Things were going pretty well. It said he had a wife and four children. He was the highest paid employee at the General Electric plant where he worked. And things looked very promising. But sadly, he said just a few social drinks led to his demise. Really, he was an alcoholic and even his good intentions began to fail him. And it got so bad that eventually his wife would have to come down and and try to meet him at the close of his shift just to get enough money for groceries. But he figured out that, and so he decided to start sneaking out the side door and head directly uh, to the bar. And it was just a devastating, terrible thing that he was doing, and he realized it. He had a lot of remorse, but he couldn't control it. So finally, in one day, in 1944, he couldn't take his craving any longer, and he drew his paycheck quit his job, and he took off, abandoned his family, just left them. He said he loved his family, but that craving for alcohol was stronger than his any other desire, and so he would do anything to feed its supply or to, to assure its supply. The very next morning, he said he woke up in an old tenement building on Skid Road, never thought he'd find himself there. He said he was, went, he was in and out of jails for drunkenness, vagrancy, disorderly conduct, Whatever love my wife had for me had changed to hate because of the disgrace I had put my family through. Well, he began to rue the day that he started drinking, and he began to feel regret and remorse. He said after about a year of this life, he gave himself up in New York. He said he wanted to go home. So they contacted his wife. They found out they had a warrant out for his arrest for abandonment and non-support. But when they called his wife, she said, I don't want him back. Better off without him. And the prison, the jail said, we don't want you either. We're better off without you. So at that point, he said he lost all hope. Gave him some money. He said he went out and he bought a jug of wine. Drowned his sorrows. Two years later, he said he, uh, after spending some time in jail in Seattle, he found himself in Portland he was lying on his old bed in a flop house and he heard some music outside his window and he went out to see what was going on and there were some saints of God holding a church meeting. And he said he began to hear people tell about how the Lord could deliver them and set them free. And something resonated in his heart. He said afterward they invited him to church. He said he felt like he walked right out of hell directly into heaven. It says at the close of the service, he went down to pray and he began to pray and he began to ask the Lord to save him, but he couldn't seem to break through. He told the people there uh, what he had done. He said, I have abandoned my family on the East Coast and I sold my blood and my clothes just to get booze. And they just encouraged him, tell the Lord about it. Well, he kept praying and he didn't get saved. And so he went back to his motel room that night and he said he prayed all night long, just couldn't seem to break through. But say, he said, finally, he said, my heart was black with sin. But finally, the Lord showed me that I had done more than hurt my wife, my children, and society. He showed me that I had hurt him. He said, when I had godly sorrow for what I had done, the Lord came down and saved me from my sins, and I knew it. 
That moment when he realized his sin was against a righteous, holy God, it hurt the heart of God, and he was willing to confess that. That guilty sorrow was changed to godly sorrow. He said at that moment the Lord saved him, changed him, transformed his life in a moment of time, cleaned him up. He was able to go get a good job, and eventually over time uh, the Lord softened his wife's heart, and they came out, and the family was rejoined and she was saved and he was able to support his family and live for the Lord victoriously every day since that time. But it took that godly sorrow, that godly sorrow for sin that brings repentance. It's the same today. A lot of people carrying around a lot of grief, a lot of sorrow, a lot of anguish. But until that grief leads to repentance, there won't be any comfort. But thank God that godly sorrow can bring about positive changes in a person's life. You know, it's easy to think of mourning and repentance as actions that only apply to sinners. And certainly those things are important in order to get saved. But you know, even as Christians sometimes, uh, we're striving for godly perfection. I believe we all are. But even sometimes in that striving for protection, we're still dealing with our humanity. And sometimes we can make mistakes or do things or even say things or react in a way that might grieve the heart of the Lord. We don't do it intentionally, but it's part of being human. But, you know, the Lord's Spirit is faithful. He deals with us about those things. Any serious Christian, we want to be sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit in anything that grieves God and our life should be a grief to us. And the Lord is faithful to show us we want to be sensitive to the voice of the Lord. Sometimes things can creep in that we're not even aware of at times. I remember a sister sharing something with me that happened to her several years ago. She said uh, somebody in the church had said something about her family. And it hurt her deeply. It wounded the entire family. And she said she allowed a little bitterness and unforgiveness to get in her heart. And she didn't even realize it at times. But every time she would see this individual, these feelings would start to rise up within her. And she realized it was causing a hindrance in her own life. And she said, finally one day, the Lord just showed her That problem isn't that other person's problem. Even though they may have committed the offense, you've allowed it to become a problem in your own life. And that unforgiveness and bitterness is hindering you. And it's hindering our relationship. She hadn't backslidden at that point, but she was well on her way. And she said she finally just got down on her knees before the Lord. She surrendered that thing to the Lord and God gave her peace. The Lord took that bitterness out of her heart. She was sensitive to the voice of the Lord. So we know that godly mourning brings good results. It really does. God's design for us is that we're a holy people. It says he wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. Sometimes that process is painful. That purifying process, it's like gold. It has to be tried in the fire. That dross has to be burned away. But in the end, the results are good, and that's what godly sorrow will do. It causes us to examine our hearts and say, Lord, search me, try me, know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me into that way everlasting. 
Godly sorrow and mourning isn't hopeless condemnation. That's the kind of the results of a worldly sorrow is that it is hopeless, but not so with the Lord. You know, there's an old idea that if it makes me sad, it must be bad. Well, that's not the case, not with godly sorrow. Godly sorrow can produce beautiful things, good things in our lives. Godly sorrow can lead to earnestness, a seriousness about the gospel. Godly sorrow can sometimes cause alarm, which is not a bad thing. Certainly did for Josiah when they realized that they had offended God, drove them to their knees. You know, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, so we know that's not a bad thing. Godly sorrow gives us that desire to go back and make the wrongs right, to make restitution. Most important of all, we know that godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance leads to salvation, not to be repented of. So we know godly sorrow can be a good thing. Mourning can be a good thing. Mourning isn't meant to be a permanent condition. Psalm 30 verse 5 tells us, For his anger endureth but a moment, in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. You know, maybe you're here today or you're listening in and you're burdened down with sin or regret. Maybe you're mourning over the consequences of your action. Maybe you're struggling with guilty sorrow. That's the worst thing to struggle with. But you know what? Let the Lord turn that into godly sorrow. God will work something beautiful out in your life this morning if you need to be saved. God is here. He's holding out his hands. He's welcoming you. It takes that godly sorrow. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you've uh, taken back on a, a, a consecration or something that you've given to the Lord and you're grieved about it. The Lord understands God can help you. He can help you today. The Lord can turn your sorrow into joy. We have a great opportunity for that to happen right now as we close this part of the service. I would encourage you. The Lord is a great burden bearer. He really is. God can comfort you, give you strength today. Whatever your need may be, if we come and we uh, come in faith, just give your life to the Lord. Ask God to help. He'll raise you up. He'll give you joy today. We're going to sing song 610. These altars are open.